Matthew says your papers suck. April Fools. Only half your papers suck. Um, we're working on them. We don't have them yet. We're getting there. Um, so you'll get them back. You're not freaking. I'm glad. Um, for us, it's just kind of like Groundhog Day or Source Code. It's like, oh, this paper again. No, April Fools. Just kidding. Um, you guys aren't laughing. A student in one of my other classes, um, some of you may even know her, said that she went up to someone, she's very skinny, she went up to someone at a CVS today, and just a stranger in the aisle, not someone who worked there, but a stranger in the aisle, and she said to this woman, um, I'm like, I think I'm, I'm seven or eight months pregnant, but I don't know, and um, I need to find out, but I'm too embarrassed to buy a pregnancy <laughs> test. Could you buy it for me? Uh, so that was her prank for April Fool's Day. Um, <laughs> okay, tough audience today. Um, all right. Um, there were a couple of things that I wanted to... Um, talk about still going back to really the difference and similarities, but the differences between um, Groundhog Day and source code, and then um, talk, if you want, for a while about possible worlds, which are obviously relevant to um, the issues, and I think to some extent diff differently relevant. That is, uh, wh what we ended up talking about um, at the end of class on... Thursday, um, was a little bit of the difference between um, the rest of the world besides the um, focal figure in source code um, as opposed to the rest of the world besides the focal figure in Groundhog Day. And um, the differences are, I think, really interesting. They're... they're um, subtle to describe, and yet I think you feel them very sharply. You can feel um, what a different movie, um, how different those two movies are from each other, um, not only in terms of plot and in terms of character, although obviously there's a lot of difference there, um, but also in terms of what it means for things to keep repeating, um, what it means for us to be seeing the same background characters, the same figures in both um, movies, but they're differently the same. Um, when you get repetitions in Groundhog Day, you feel that the experience of the rest of the cast, let's call it, the rest of the population, in the repeating worlds is a different experience from the, from the experience of the rest of the population in the repeating worlds of Groundhog Day. Is that something just, I mean, we did talk about it a little bit, but did you, did you guys feel that intuitively? That, um, yes, no, maybe, meh? Pick one. A, yes, B, no, C, maybe, D, meh. D, really? Okay. Um, that means we get to have a really boring, picky Yoon specific class in which I keep trying to say this and you don't believe me, and so I repeat myself. But it's about repetition, so it's okay, right? Um, 
the way we were talking about it on Thursday is um, partly um, talking about the way we're experiencing or paying attention to the acting. Um, in Groundhog Day, it feels like, at least it feels like to me, that one of the really interesting things about it is how the actors are able to go through their paces, redo the shots, and redo the shots over and over again, and do something that good actors have to be able to do, which is look spontaneous, look interested, look like um, they're having their reactions the first time when, in fact, it's the 20th take. So in any movie, you'll have take after take after take. Um, certainly in any American movie, you'll have take after take after take. Um, in Eastern European movies, um, there's, there tends to be a different way that Eastern European movies are produced, which is, at least um, historically, film was really expensive. And so what they would do is they would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And they wouldn't actually do the shooting until they'd done a ton of rehearsal. But nevertheless, what that meant was that they would be redoing scene after scene after scene until the director thought it was right. And then, when it was letter perfect and word perfect, um, then they would expose the film. Um, and um, so there's still repetition of spontaneity. The attempt to um, sustain the illusion of spontaneity, but, a re but af after and through a huge amount of rehearsal and a huge amount of repetition. So it seems to me that Groundhog Day was much more about that. That is to say that um, Andy McDowell especially, it was kind of part of her character that she was always able to, be, to pay attention to what Bill Murray was doing and what he was saying. Even though she was prejudiced against him, it was part of her, the way she's represented, the way her character is represented in the movie as a certain kind of um, willingness, a certain kind of openness, a certain kind of um, good-humoredness, um, which allowed her to pretty much think she knew the score, um, but nevertheless not decide for sure that she knew the score. She was open to being surprised, even though she didn't think things were going to be very, very surprising. And what that meant was that as he becomes more surprising over the course of the movie, um, her own openness to that, her kind of openness to changing her mind even though things are settled, that's how repetition was uh, working for her as an actress and how it was working for her as a character. And as I say, that's something that um, good actors are really, really good at doing, and it's really, really hard to do. Um, source code was different, I think. The feel, the atmosphere of source code is different um, in that regard, because in source code, every iteration changed, and changed from the start. That is to say that it wasn't, um, in source code, you don't have um, a series of events that um, the main character gets, um, gets down. So it's not like 
the thing about Groundhog Day is that a whole lot of Groundhog Day, there's a reason that he's taking piano lessons, because a whole lot of Groundhog Day is like when you learn to play a piece on the piano, which is once he's learned the first measure, he'll play that right from then on, and then have to learn the second measure. And then he'll play the first two measures right from then on, and have to learn to play the third measure. And so each time there's an iteration in Groundhog Day, at least for the first half of the movie, what you feel about those iterations is that here's the part we already know, here's the part we're familiar with, here's um, the part where he tries something new, and that's where there's a bifurcation. Whereas in source code, every repetition, something, it starts out the same, but it stays the same only for a few seconds, if that, um, because he's immediately doing something else. The urgency in source code is something very, very different from the leisureliness of Groundhog Day. In Groundhog Day, he has all the time in the world, the main character, the main, has all the time in the world in Groundhog Day. Um, in source code, the main not only doesn't have more than eight minutes, but they're trying to prevent a nuclear attack, a dirty bomb attack, that very afternoon. So he doesn't have many repetitions to figure out who is the bomber. Um, there's always pressure. There's time pressure in source code that there isn't in Groundhog Day. And that's part of what makes, that's part of what makes the movies feel different. A part of, but the way it makes the movies feel different is the pressure that that plot situation, that that jeopardy puts on what characters do from the start. So in source code, um, he is doing different things from the very beginning of the movie. The stuff that he gets down, which is, okay, so you're thinking of going to India, that's something he just dismisses. Um, he himself, unlike Bill Murray, you could say, um, he himself is not faking interest in something he already knows the way Bill Murray is in Groundhog Day. In Groundhog Day, he's got to go through the first half hour, let's say, with Annie McDowell and, and um, go through the snowball fight and go through the, yeah, I really want kids, and go through the ordering the right drink, all the stuff that's going to impress her, and go through the little prayer to wor for world peace. Um, in source code, the idea is, yeah, you want to go to India. Right now, i got to figure out who that guy is. Um, and so the, the changes are there from the start. So part of it is that in just looking at the mains, looking at Bill Murray, um, looking at um, both main characters, um, Bill Murray as a character, that is Phil, as a character, has to try to do what a good actor does, which is to look interested in lines that he already knows that his partner is saying. That's part of the plot of that movie. In order to convince Andy McDowell that he is the person that she, is, she should be interested in, in order to convince her of that, he has to, he, the character, has to do something actors have to do, which is to look interested when he's not, to look as though he's hearing something for the first time when he's hearing it for the hundredth time. Um, 
Jake Gyllenhaal in in or or um, um, Coulter in um, in Source Code isn't doing that, and to the extent that he's paying any attention to something he's already heard before, it's to get people to hurry through what it is they're about to say. So he takes no interest the second time he hears that she wants to go to India, that she's thinking of quitting her job. It's like, yeah, good idea, but I have other things to do. So there's a difference between um, the actorly repetition of apparent interest that Groundhog Day is about and that we also feel in all the other characters in Groundhog Day and the idea that each iteration in source code, the plot is actually different in each iteration. And um, therefore, there's no need to go through what's, what you've gone through before, no need for the actors to go through what they've gone through before, because each time something different happens almost from the very start. There's a splitting of worlds in source code almost from the very start. In source code, you feel that everyone is splitting. Um, in Groundhog Day, it's only Bill Murray who's splitting, who's, tr who's becoming a different person each time. Um, in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray really is experiencing repetition, which he's trying to take control of, but he's experiencing repetition each day. In source code, Coulter is not experiencing repetition. He's attempting to make a difference. So he's given a repetition, but he's trying to change it into something different from the start in each different iteration. And I think that feeling, that atmosphere of difference and change, is, affects how you think about all the other characters as well. That is how all the other characters and all the other actors feel to us as we're watching the movie. Um, and what we feel as we're watching the movie um, in all the, other, all the other characters slash actors is that in Groundhog Day, again, um, they have to be fresh in a world that's no longer fresh to Bill Murray and to some extent can't be fresh to the actors, but the characters do find it fresh, and that's, that's um, a really good acting job that they do. The actors in source code don't have to do that. The actors in source code are doing a different story each time. And because it's a different story each time, um, they get to do different things from the very start. Um, because they're interacting with someone who is different from the very start. Someone who is a mild-mannered teacher turns into um, you know, a rock star superhero um, in the third or fourth iteration. And um, that's great. That's fascinating. That's wonderful. Um, and so that fact is something that, that um, means that they're acting differently. They themselves are not experiencing repetition. Or to put it another way, we in the audience, and this is actually a segue into what we're going to be talking about um, over the next couple of weeks, but we in the audience are not imputing to them an experience of repetition where the actors we know have done this before 
but the characters have not, and we are par part of our aesthetic experience, as um, it always is, especially in a star system, is looking at the difference between the actors and the characters. That is, you know, it's Tom Cruise, but he's playing this guy who is a cultist, unlike the real Tom Cruise, who's a different kind of cultist. Um, but um, that sense that we're watching really good acting, that becomes part of the actual content of Groundhog Day. We're aware that we're watching really good acting. That is part of the content of Groundhog Day. It's not a bug, but a feature. We're supposed to be aware that we're watching really good acting because by being aware of that, we're also aware of the ways in which Bill Murray, Phil, has to learn um, what he can rely on and what he can't, has to find his way around in a world in which we're watching really good acting, which is to say acting that he's not going to be able somehow to break through. In source code, it's much more conventional in a way. Um, we're, we, we are watching really good acting, but that's not what we're thinking. We're not thinking to ourselves, oh my, this acting is so good. Look, he's doing the same line in exactly the same way this time. Um, what we're watching is just a series of short adventure movies around a common theme. Um, and they're good, but we're not paying attention to how good the acting is. So in Groundhog Day, the acting is thematized. The acting is something that we're focusing on, whereas in Source Code, we're doing what we do in most movies, which is seeing through the acting to the story being told. Yeah? Um, I remember if it was last time, but in Groundhog Day, was there ever, ever any instance where they reused the same footage for different takes of the same scene? Yeah, so I'm... Instead of filming the same scene twice. I'm pretty sure there are, there are a couple of moments, um, but only a couple. Um, and I keep meaning to, um, to check them out again, but it's a pain. Um, but I'm pretty sure that if there are, um, there are only a couple. And ones that, and every time I think that they're using the same footage, if I look closely, it turns out they're not. Um, and you would think that they would. But, um, but if there are, it's, it's really, really, really um, just short, um, short takes. Yeah. But like not necessarily the same footage, but different takes of the same scene. Oh, that I'm sure they're doing. Yeah. I mean, how could they not be? So wouldn't that sort of defeat the purpose of the good acting quality of them being amazing actors? Because it would just be like one scene they just messed up in a way they can use in another another scene that wasn't necessarily a purpose. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not saying that um, in fact we're we're looking at what's factually great acting, although I think we are looking at what's factually great acting, but American movies are all really well acted. I mean any major American movie, um, the acting is gonna be really good. Um, with very few exceptions. There are a couple immediately leap to mind. But with very few exceptions, the acting is going to be really good. But it's that the illusion is, that is that it's part of the story that um, we're looking at, um, that we feel that we're looking at really good actors. Um, that's part of the story that we're, um, that has, that's affected, that has the effect on us that it does because we do have this kind of double view of what we're looking at. Um, and the double view that we're looking at seems to be that we're looking at really good actors. 
Now, one thing, here's another thing that I think is parallel to this and that we were talking about um, a little bit last week, which is the series of deaths in both movies. So source code, um, each episode in source code ends with everyone or almost everyone on the train being blown up. Um, each episode in, let's say, the middle third um, or the third quarter of Groundhog Day um, has Bill Murray killing himself. And um, what source code is about is his trying to prevent the deaths that keep happening in source code, the repeated deaths, the death of everyone on the train. Um, what Groundhog Day is about is, and we talked about this last week, is his trying to prevent one death, the death of the homeless man, even though his own deaths, over and over and over again, his repeated deaths don't matter. In Groundhog Day, he keeps trying to do good things, although from one perspective, it doesn't matter that he keeps trying to do good things because it'll just happen again the next day. If the kid falls out of the, out of the tree and breaks his leg or breaks his neck, okay, 6 a.m. the next day, um, the kid will be up in the tree again and perfectly fine. So why does he have to be saved? Why does the guy have to be saved from choking, which does seem to be a life-saving moment? Um, why is it so sad that he can't save the homeless guy from death? Um, why is his own death just not an issue each day in Groundhog Day? The way Groundhog Day is treating death and disaster um, is maybe not quite consistent with itself, or I think in a deeper level it actually is consistent with itself. Um, in source code, um, he's trying to prevent the death that's going to happen every day. And what I would say is, what we could say about source code is that each iteration, or maybe we should say the first time that he's in the train and then the train blows up, is actually a prophecy for what will eventually happen. If you were to look at source code schematically, rather than um, taking seriously the plot claims of source code. But if you were to look at source code schematically, um, what you would say is, here's a prophecy. Everyone in this train will be blown up. Here, let me um, show you what that will look like. That's the Scrooge part, the ghost of Christmas future. Here's what things will look like. Watch carefully. Isn't that terrible? Okay, this way of handling how things are going to happen won't work. Watch carefully. Isn't that terrible? It's almost as though in source code, um, he's gaming different possibilities, and each one is a simulation of whether they're going to be able to escape death or not, but it never feels like a real death. Now, if that makes sense to you, um, one way you can see the movie source code doing that is by giving you the real jeopardy, which is the death of millions of people in Chicago. In other words, source code is about preventing a possible disaster. And that's, as I say, that's called the jeopardy in a movie. Some of you know um, that a friend of mine 
um, who's a screenwriter, was pitching a story in Hollywood, and he said, okay, so this is actually before the, um, the sum of all fears, but he was saying, yeah, so, um, so there's a nuclear bomb, and Obama was talking about this the other day in Manhattan, but he, I think he said uh, in Los Angeles, nuclear bomb in Los Angeles, um, seven million people are going to get killed if this bomb goes off, and um, so this is a movie about trying to prevent this bomb from going off and killing seven million people. So he's pitching this to a producer, and the producer said, yeah, 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 that's really interesting, but what's the jeopardy? Um, and the idea there is seven million people is a statistic. It doesn't get um, an audience interested. Um, the jeopardy is if there's someone with her little dog, and we love the little dog because it's so cute, and she's so kind to the little dog, and she's having a hard time, and all sorts of things, and she's in Los Angeles. Um, that's the jeopardy, because she would get killed too along with the other 6,999,999 other people. Um, so in source code, though, the Jeopardy really is everyone in Chicago. Um, and OK, we don't care that much watching it. You know, It would be nice for the dirty bomb not to go off. But there's also everyone on the train. And those two things get linked so that there is an event that doesn't happen but could happen which is the destruction of Chicago. And what we feel, what the movie gets us to feel, schematically what the movie does, is to make the saving of the train equal the saving of Chicago. If he can find the bomber and the bomb, then Chicago won't be destroyed. But, he, but his motive for finding the bomber and the bomb is not to save Chicago. It may be officially, but we never feel that. We're not thinking, oh, yes, Jacob Long is going to save Chicago. I really hope he does. Too bad about the train, but save Chicago. What we're feeling is he's got to find the bomber because then maybe he can save all the people on the train. Oh, plus also Chicago. Um, and I really think that that's how the, the ec economics of the Jeopardy work in source code. And um, what that then means is that we don't take the deaths in source code as real deaths um, until the end. Then the question, so will this prophecy come true, which is that everyone in the train blows up? Will the prophecy that Dr. Goodwin, um, or the Captain Goodwin, um, insists, which is you can't save anyone on the train, will that come true or not? And it's only at the very end that that becomes an issue for us. In Groundhog Day, it's different. In Groundhog Day, what we feel is he does die every day, um, but it doesn't matter because he comes back to life. Um, but it's not, oh, here's a prophecy. If Annie McDowell st keeps being mean to him, he'll die. Um, it's rather, no. It's just because of this world of repetition that he's in, he dies, he comes back to life. He dies, he comes back to life. He dies, he comes back to life. It gets kind of boring. Um, but other people in Groundhog Day, their deaths don't seem so insignificant as his death. And that's why it feels right that he tries and sometimes succeeds in saving lives. That is, even though his success in saving lives isn't going to stop the repetition of the same event the next day, nevertheless, we feel that for that day, he has saved that life. And the next day, 
he may have to save that life again. And if he hadn't saved that life, he would still be able to save it the next day. And yet somehow it's not feeling like, like the same thing practiced for and finally um, succeeded in in saving their lives. Each time he saves a life, it seems to matter that he saved that life. Um, and it's interesting that we have that, those different responses to those two movies that seem um, similar in so many ways, that every life saved except his own, every life saved in Groundhog Day matters even though he's going to have to save that life again the next day, and even though had he not saved that life, as with the homeless man, he'll get another chance to save the life the next day. It still seems to matter every day. And so maybe what we could say then is that Groundhog Day, this, is, this fits in with the way in Groundhog Day everyone else besides Bill Murray um, seems to be living their one life that day. They don't seem themselves to be changing as a result, let's say, of forgotten experiences which are nevertheless their own experiences. So another way to put it is to say that one of the things that's convincing about um, source code is how the characters get to know each other better and better. And it's partly because it feels a little bit like Dark City, even though schematically their memory is wiped, except for um, uh, Coulter's, their memory is wiped for each iteration of the game, um, they nevertheless become more familiar with each other. They get to know each other. He certainly gets to know them better, and they get to know that he's a more formidable person better. So each time there's a replay, there's a replay with him on a more expert level, and everyone else in the train is aware of him as having more expertise um, than they were aware of him having the previous time. And so again, you get a sense, a subliminal sense, but a sense that they're getting to know him just as we get to know him that they're um, interacting with him so that in minute 100 of source code, what you would see is the kind of acting that you get in minute 100 of any movie in which characters get to know each other. But in minute 100 of Groundhog Day, you don't get the kind of acting that you get in minute 100 of any movie where characters are getting to know each other. That's another way of putting it. So even though officially the facts, the things they talk about, the events they're able to refer to in source code are no more well established than they are in Groundhog Day, nevertheless, characterologically or in an actorly manner, they are. Um, and as I say, I think this is true of Dark City as well. Their memories are wiped. But the characters, as we get to know the characters better, they get to know each other better. That's standard in movies. That is, that our knowing characters, our getting to know characters, is something that we then project onto them and how well they know each other. Um, it's just part of the way we're built as social beings, that the more we know someone, the more we assume that um, people who know each other, when we know both of them, know each other as we know 
both of them. That's our default um, reaction. And movies capitalize on that reaction. But in Groundhog Day, they don't tend to get to know each other better, with the possible exception of the barkeeper, um, who's always giving knowing looks whenever he buys a drink. Um, and that knowing look might be where that sense of someone besides us knowing what's going on. Bill Murray's the person who's making things go, go on, but someone besides us knowing what's going on, um, that seems to um, be where we can put that aspect of our way of viewing films. So what we can then say, maybe, is that um, in Groundhog Day, you really do get a kind of repetition that you don't get in source code. One thing to be thinking about when you watch Vertigo is the extent to which that's also a movie about repetition. Um, to what extent? How many people have seen Vertigo? Um, so if you've seen it, you know why I'm asking that. If you haven't, well, you will. Um, but to what extent is that a movie about repetition? To what extent is that a movie um, about someone being act, asked to act as though a repetition isn't taking place, which requires a really good acting job because the repetition is taking place. Now, where this, just to look backwards a little bit to stuff we've already talked about, um, this really affects our sense of, I think, of the metaphysics of other minds. That is, one thing that you could say about Groundhog Day. Um, obviously, the question of other minds is a huge question in source code, but it may be even deeper in Groundhog Day. One thing that you could say about Groundhog Day is that on the one hand, as Lewis C.K. puts it, on the one hand, um, everyone else seems to be an extra in Bill Murray's life. That is, he's the one who's having this experience, and everyone else is there to redo the experience for him. If they were replicants, if they were robots, if they were meat puppets, if they were androids, if they were the kinds of toys that J.F. Sebastian has in Blade Runner, um, they would just go through the motions. They could very well be just extremely well-done avatars, because what we don't think of them as having at all is the history that we ascribe to other minds, the experience, what it means to think, to treat someone as having a mind, is to treat them as having a past that matters to them. And to think that what matters matters not just in the present moment, but because of what they will, how they will react now, how they will remember this moment, how this will affect their views of this moment in the future. If you insult someone, it's not only that you're causing them pain at the present moment, which may be bad enough, but also, you know that they're going to um, remember this and stay pissed at you. If you think of someone as having a mind, which we do all the time, 
most of us. Um, if you think of someone as having a mind, what you think is they have a past, and that that past is part of their commitments in the present. That they are the way they are because in some sense they have a moral right, or at least there's a moral explanation of the way that they are. And that moral right, or at least that moral explanation of the way that they are, means that you are thinking of them as people with minds affected, thinking about, knowing, responding to stuff that has happened to them. So in a way, you could say having a mind and having <coughs> memory go together, that minds and memories go together. Hume was, um, who didn't really believe in the importance of a word like mind, basically said the mind is like a theater in which they're just a succession of images that pass, repass, and glide away um, having no other substance or being than illusions. And then he goes on to say, and don't even let the metaphor of the theater mislead you because then you would think there was something solid, the stage or the uh, proscenium arch or something, and there isn't even that. So for Hume, there's only the present, and that's part of Hume's strange skepticism. But for um, an idea of other minds, what you have is a sense that these are beings with pasts. The past is part of what they are. The past is not part of what this cup is. Of course it has a past, but that's not part of what it is. But beings with pasts, beings where the past is part of what they are, part of what it means to be them, that's what we think of when we think of other minds. And um, Groundhog Day doesn't really seem to give you that. Groundhog Day gives you some, a bunch of people who are simply there for Phil whenever he turns them on. How does he turn them on? Well, he doesn't turn them on. The alarm turns them on. So every day, the clock flips to six, and they're all turned on back where they were the day before. Um, they're rebooted, they're reset, and nothing that happened before matters. They're not creatures with minds. Whereas in, um, in um, source code, even though they really are rebooted every day, even though there really is no past that we are privy to, that we saw anything about, that we know anything about before the day's reboot, each day's reboot actually feels like what happened the previous day is still part of those characters. Not officially, not on a plot level, but simply on a structural or um, um, experiential level of what it's like to watch that sort of movie source code is depending on the fact that we're watching it the way we watch other movies, which is that we get to know characters. Um, part of what's interesting about Groundhog Day is the only character we really get to know better after the first 20 minutes is Bill Murray. Everyone else is what we already knew they were, pretty much, in the first 20 minutes. 
they act differently, they do different things, but they don't become richer or deeper to us. Um, they are pretty rich and deep to begin with. It's not a failure that they don't become deeper and richer to us. It's just what's really novel and interesting about that movie is that they don't become richer and deeper to us. So there, again, is a way of trying to describe the difference. So one thing then that you could say about Groundhog Day is because the characters don't have pasts and don't have um, minds, and because they reboot, what will make the movie convincing is if Bill Murray takes their death seriously, takes their mortal danger seriously. It's as though his own seriousness in regarding them as really at risk of death, instead of simply saying, okay, so they died in this simulation, but they'll, um, we'll try again next time and hope they don't die. You know, like Captain Kirk um, defeating the simulator after everyone else blows up the Enterprise in the Academy, as you all know, it's done in two or three different um, Star Trek movies. Um, that in Groundhog Day, the more seriously Bill Murray takes the deaths of characters, the less he regards them as something that will be simulate that's a simulation and that he could try again the next day, and that he has as long as he needs to get it right. The less he regards them that way, the more he becomes a morally serious person. And the more his own moral seriousness becomes something that he can project onto other characters making them real. And so his own death is not serious. It's a simulation. He dies, he comes back to life. He dies, he comes back to life. He dies, he comes back to life. But the deaths of others even if he's going to have another chance, each death is a death, even if there's another chance. And the more he does that, the better. So just to, to finish up with that idea, um, Groundhog Day ends with the bachelor auction. And the whole idea of the bachelor auction, in a way, captures what we've been talking about, which is because it's an auction, he becomes an object, a commodity, an item bid for. Rather than a consumer, which is what the economic name for being a subjectivity is. What it means to be a first person, to have a first person perspective of the world, to be subjective, is in some sense, to put it you know, grossly and economically, but helpfully as well, is to be the consumer of your own experiences. They're your experiences. You're the end user. You're the consumer. So subjectivity and consumption are, consumption is the economic name for what philosophically or psychologically is called subjectivity. Being a consumer, being a subject, those are the same things. Consumers have needs. Subjects have needs. To need is the thing common to consumers, to the idea of being a consumer and the idea of being a subject. What consumers consume, what subjects perceive, are objects, commodities. So that structure 
consumer commodity, subject object, they're the same structure. That's why Marx said, very famously, that what he was doing was exactly the same thing as what Hegel was doing, except that he was um, turning Hegel on his head by going to, as Marx put it, the um, rising from the abstract to the concrete. That was Marx's famous paradoxical formulation. To rise from the abstract to the concrete, the paradox being that most people talk about rising from the concrete to the abstract, which is what Hegel was doing. Um, and if you haven't read Hegel, um, I don't know my sympathy if you ever do read him. I mean, he's great, but not exactly easy. Kierkegaard despised him, um, so that's okay. If you prefer Kierkegaard to Hegel, that's good. Um, but for both of them, for Hegel, for um, Marx, but also for Hegel and Kant, it's the experience of subjectivity, which is their central focus. And Marx turns that into an economic experience. Um, Marx sees, he shows how that's an economic experience or how the language of economics works. So in that you know, completely Marxist movie, Groundhog Day, um, what we're seeing in the bachelor auction is that a subject and a consumer is turned into an object and a commodity. Andy McDowell then becomes the subject and the consumer. She's the one who gets Bill Murray and gets to be the person whose experience this is now about. And he doesn't get to say no. That is, he no longer gets to be the guide of her experience for his own benefit. He has to do what she wants out of her experience. So that so that the movie does a really, really good job of getting out of the lost point of having a bunch of characters who don't seem to be experiencing beings, not characters who seem to be other minds, not characters who seem to have a past, and reversing that. So now we think of her as real for only the second time, you could say, in the movie. We think of her as real the way we think of all characters as real at the beginning of a movie. Now we think of her real as real after all those times when she was really in the position of a simulation. Now we think of her as real again. Um, so I think that's a really neat trick that Groundhog Day does there. Um, a really hard thing to do, and I think it succeeds. Um, and um, that's why it's a successful movie. Um, now, one way to see how this um, fits in with possible world theories and the idea of counterparts, because if you use that word to talk about the different iterations of all these figures, and maybe that's a, that's a quick way to um, summarize the difference between source code and um, Groundhog Day, is that in source code you don't feel that every iteration you're seeing counterparts of the previous iterations. You're seeing the same people each time in source code. Whereas in Groundhog Day, you do feel that it's one Bill Murray, but that each time it's a counterpart of the previous version 
of that figure. For those of you, I mentioned Solaris, the Tarkovsky movie. Um, Solaris, um, based on the Stanislaw Lem novel, Solaris. Um, for those of you who've never seen it or read it, it's also about this issue. Um, basically, the idea, the central idea in the book, um, the movie's a little bit different, but it's central enough to the movie as well. And I mean the Tarkovsky version, not the um, uh, Steven Soderbergh version, which is not very good, um, unfortunately. But the Tarkovsky version is that um, Kelvin and the other people in his spaceship go to this strange planet. Um, and they don't understand what this planet is. It seems to be all ocean, and it seems to be, in some ways, a dead planet, but they want to explore it. They don't know. But they become aware fairly quickly that the planet itself is a life form. The planet itself is a mind. It's a single organism, the whole planet. Not a hive organism, not like, oh yeah, our, our society is a single great, great mind or whatever. No, it's a single individual and um, an inscrutable one. They don't know what this planet wants or thinks or desires or judges, but the planet does do a certain thing, which is whatever you most want in the world, the planet will give you that thing, that item, that object, that commodity. So everyone in the spaceship, as they're orbiting the planet, is hiding from everyone else in the spaceship and the reason is that in the privacy of their own rooms, they've been given the thing they most wanted. And everyone is ashamed about what they most want, right? Would you like the thing you most want to pop up right next to you right now um, in front of all these people? Really? I don't think so. Think about it. Um, so everyone is hiding because the thing they most want has been provided them by the planet. And they have no idea where it came from. It takes them a while to figure out that that's what's going on. Um, the main character, Kelvin, um, are you looking for what you must want? Okay. Uh, the main character, Kelvin, um, finds that his lost love, Kelvin is the only person with conventional tastes on the spaceship, um, finds his lost love, Rhea, has shown up. And he also realizes after a while, but it's not Rhea simulation of Rhea, but the simulation doesn't know she's a simulation. And she can't believe it, and she's ferociously in love with him. And um, he's very troubled by this. Um, and eventually, he figures out a way to get rid of her, and she agrees when she finds out what the truth is. Um, but then, even after he gets rid of her, the planet just provides him another one, her counterpart. And um, so there's a lost love. Her counterpart appears to him on the spaceship. Then the counterpart's counterpart also appears on the spaceship. Uh, the last line of the novel refers to these incidents um, as cruel miracles. Um, and his hope that the time of Cruel Miracles is not yet over. That's how the novel ends. But Cruel Miracles, um, that's what that novel, what the movie is about. Um, and the point about counterparts is if you think of possible worlds, the way we were talking about them on Thursday, 
is that if in this world I flip a coin, if in this world I have a coin in my pocket, and I flip it, and it could be heads, it could be tails, whatever it is in this world, there's another world, what makes it true that it could be heads or it could be tails, is that the fact that it's heads in this world, but it could be tails, means there's another world in which I flipped a coin and it was tails. And the major league version of this is that in this world, you might cross a street and get hit by a truck and killed, but you might have paused to pick up that lucky penny you saw instead of saying a penny, who needs it? It's true that you could have done that. It's a possibility. And had you done that, you would have survived. So a, a counterpart of you would survive in another world. Now the question is, does that do you any good or not? That is, if the moment of your death might not have been the moment of your death, if it's possible that you wouldn't die at this moment, if that's possible, that means there's another world, according to Lewis, that means there's another world in which you don't die at that moment. So the question then is, in that other world in which you don't die, is that you or not? Yeah? There's a movie called Another Earth, and mm -hmm. in Another Earth, that alternate world, I mean, the, the I'm not going to spoil it, but no, like that other person is not you. It's okay. a different person. Wait, so you said that it, that's a move? Did you say? It's a move? No, what did you say? What What is Another Earth? Oh, a movie. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about a multiple, multiple, yeah, okay. It's Do you guys know what moves are? Or are you too young for that? Muds? No? Okay. So in Another Earth, there are, like you have you, and there's the other person in the other place, and that's a completely autonomous person. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it may be that... That, so here's this autonomous person on another world who is like you in every way, um, except one, which is that if you were to meet them, you would not be meeting yourself. You would be meeting someone who is just like you, but third person is just like you. It's not like, oh, you am just like me, um, or, oh, I am just like me. As I am seeing me aiming whatever. Um, no, it would be someone else, like an identical twin. Yeah? Um, if it was, say, like you, then wouldn't you be able to think like, about whatever it is that they're thinking about? And wouldn't you be able to see whatever they see in that alternate world if it is, in fact, that you're seeing mine? Well, not if you're bifurcating at that moment. That is, if it's possible, you know, I'm looking in that direction, whatever that is, south. Um, and, but it's possible that I could be looking north. So in one world I'm looking south, in one world I'm looking north. Um, my counterpart looking north is not seeing what I would be doing if I'm looking south. So it raises a moral question, you could say, which is this, that let's say, um, as we were talking about on Thursday, that everything that can happen does happen. Um, so that... Um, Someone who is almost killed but not killed is killed in some other world. Um, let's say you could actually, um, at the touch, at the, at, the, at the wave of a wand, you could be 
in your counterpart's body in whatever world that counterpart was. So the person you love most in the world is killed, but you wave a wand, and now you're in a world where, they, where the bullet misses them. And so they're there. Um, does that count? Would you feel completely satisfied if you could do that? Would you do it? Maybe that's an easier question. So someone you love is killed, but it's a freak accident. It could easily have been that they're not killed. You, as a metaphysician of, of possible worlds, absolutely and completely agree that there's a world in which they're alive. Um, not this world, but a world in which they're alive. And you, as someone who um, took a Stanford course in travels between possible worlds, um, a massively online course on travels between possible worlds, built your possible world transporter machine so that you could trade places with any counterpart in some other world. Uh, it's possible, so it's happening somewhere, right? Okay, so you've built your little machine. You can trade places with, your, with any one of your counterparts in any world that you want. And here, the person you care most about in the world has died in a freak accident. But you could touch the button, key in the, the um, universal world locator code for that world and just be your counterpart in that world with that person still alive. Would you do it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, do you know this new show called Rick and Morty? No. Oh, I'm dying to ask that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cartoon, and they have this kind of scenario where um, a scientist and his grandson, they, they, go, they destroy the Earth, mm -hmm. uh, but the scientist has a teleporter thing. So like Titan A. So they go to an Earth that's exactly the same. So they go to a twin Earth. And they kill themselves. And they kill so that they won't do it? Place. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see the reason why not, unless unless you're not 100% certain that, that this is really the same Earth, you know. Ye Wait, so you don't see why you wouldn't go to another... Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah. if, if your best friend dies and there's like an Earth that's exactly the same, except he's alive, why not? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Do you agree? No. All right. Uh, uh, I'm gonna you're going to pass? Yeah. There's a world in which you're answering. <laughs> just want you to know that. That's not okay, good. He said that. That's what he said. Um, yeah, Megan. Well, what do you mean by real? Whatever C.S. What I mean, whatever C.S. Lewis means by real is not what I mean. Whatever D.K. Lewis means by real, yeah. Although it's C.S. Lewis too. I mean, you know, they go they go to Narnia, they come back, they're kids again. They go to Narnia over and over. Each time it's different. Susan gets punished. I would say yeah, just like. Dependent on like the relationship being the same, uh huh. Like show up and like that hate you. Um, no, no, no. The relate it would it would the only difference would be the freak accident doesn't happen. Yeah, in that case, the only other thing you wonder then is that since we don't know like the relationships of causality, there are less that happen. Yeah. Um, I actually think there's like another pretty good show. Have any of you seen Awake? Terribly made, great premise. Um, but like. It's this guy who is in a free car accident, and he wakes up, and his wife is dead. And he goes to bed that night, yeah. and he wakes up, and his son is dead. 
And so he lives parallel lives, one in which his wife is dead, one in which his son yeah, is dead. Yeah, I saw the um, trailers for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, I don't know, Brandon's debate ran as a case for a while of like, do you wake up uh-huh. given a one-time opportunity to do it? Yeah. But like, that would be like, would I ever get to go back? Would I get to wake up? Like, would it be real? Would I take the red pill? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Assuming that your counterpart also has the ability to make an uh, interworld machine, <laughs> you would probably find out, wait a minute, my wife was, he would be privy to what just happened. Yeah, but you just go to worlds. He can rebuild his own machines. Yeah, except, then, except there are worlds where he possibly wouldn't have um, learned how to do that, and those are the worlds that you'll go to, one of those worlds. <laughs> you can always finesse this. <laughs> um, so what would you do? Oh, what would I do? Uh, yes, wait. Uh, it doesn't matter. I'd, I'd rather my counterpart have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, he's scared the trauma of seeing their beloved being shot in front of them. Uh, and I would get to have her back. Okay. Uh, so it would be a win-win for both of us. <laughs> All right, yes. <laughs> Everybody's happy. Um, yeah, awesome. So I, I would do it. But um, I was more, I was curious about this whole, like, if you can go between worlds. And if you can go between any other counterpart world, then doesn't that mean that in all worlds, there's a possibility that someone from another world could just show up? If that was the case, then there isn't a counterpart world where that's not possible. Um, it, what, like, doesn't it create, like, a cycle? No, 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 like yeah, but, but now you're making possibility of fact about a world instead of the existence of another world. So you can that mean, that, no, it can be an issue. Game. It can be an issue, but don't go don't go meta. Um, okay. If you don't go meta, this is this is a baseline question. Okay. Um, so there are possible worlds where no one has thought. It's possible that no one would ever have thought about the possibility of possible worlds. So go to one of those worlds where no one has had that idea, um, because it's possible there are such worlds. And then fine, it won't be an issue for anyone there. And and Bob's your uncle, um, Sam. Yeah, I see how it's tempting this situation to do it in this car crash situation to go to a different world, but I would say no, just because it would make all of your all of your decisions weightless. Anytime you made a decision, you would always be just going to a different counter world, and I think there's some, there's got to be some. I would like to have some value in making a right decision every time I'm like, you know, with two options. So I don't know. I, I just think there needs to be there needs to be consequences to your actions. You can't just be able to you know reverse and switch to a different counter world where there's a Okay, yeah. Um, Jay? I don't think I would have, because you would have already experienced your friend's death, and therefore, I don't, if I was to transport to another world, like, I don't think I could view that person as the same. Uh huh. But then I was thinking about it, and if it was my dog, I would do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love that idea. Yeah, you know what Gertrude Stein said, her, her definition of how she knew who she was? I am I because my little dog knows me. So, yeah, nice. I like that idea. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm going down the same road, but like. Do but we in a different have, world. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but do we even have to worry about this question? Because if there were, in fact, other worlds where we could go into other worlds and kill ourselves, then, like, wouldn't I be dead already? Right? Because. Because yeah, but you would go to a happened. world where you haven't. No, I'm saying like I know there. 
I could say that I know that there aren't any world, there isn't a world where I would go into another world and kill me. But I no, guess, you, so you're going I guess maybe he's, me, is going to, not this one, but a different one. Never mind. Okay, but just think, think of it as a question. There are actually a couple other things that I have to get to, but think of it just as a question of um, if, you know, if you could, if you could make time occur again, so someone someone dies, but you have a machine that enables you to roll roll back um, time, and then you can save them and they survive, and you love that person. Um, other things being equal, like you know, no no um, sweeper from a Terry Pratchett novel warns you against this, um, but other things being equal, uh, you would do it. Um, but in this case, it's not that you get to roll back time in this world and then have a different outcome. It's that you just go to another world and switch places with one of your counterparts where this terrible thing didn't happen. Um, so there the question is, would you do it? So let's get four quick comments on that. Um, if there was a chance that you would say yes, wouldn't there be another world where you did? So you might as well take advantage of that fact. Well, I wonder if that's 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 clever. I wonder if that would um, uh, if that would be dispositive, though. So, but that's that's uh, you could say that's another way of asking the question. Um, yeah. I guess to digress a bit, we're assuming that someone, your counterpart in another world, is in a separate consciousness from you, like you were saying, like an identical yeah, twin. Yeah. Right. Doesn't that sort of bring us back to if we go and replace that person? Yeah. The source code question of what happened to Sean? Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. What happened to the consciousness of the person that you replaced? And obviously it, it's you, but if we're going on the kind of the another Earth premise where it's an autonomous person. Yeah. It's me. They become you and they have to mourn. So you just switch with them, let's say that. And there's no consequence to that? That seems too easy. So you do it. If there's no consequence, I don't know. I'm kind of I mean, we do it in real life all the time. A friend of, um, so when Pan Am Flight 800, I think it was, went down, um, being the news curious person that I am, I read the list of uh, people who were killed on the flight, and um, one of them was a person I knew who who um, took that route all the time, and there was his name on the list. And you know, I didn't particularly like him, but I didn't dislike him. But he was someone I knew, and. He'd been part of my life, and I felt really bad about it. And, you know, wow, I can't believe, I'm not going to say his name, um, but I can't believe that, um, that he was on that flight. Damn, you know, when, whenever you look at flights like that, you think you're not going to know someone, but I knew someone. And then I spoke to a mutual friend of ours, and I said, did you see that John Doe was on that flight? And he said, no, actually, I spoke to him yesterday. It was a different guy with the same name. Um, and, like, our response was relief, like, that's good, except that just meant that someone else died. Um, so it's perfectly natural to feel relieved when it's not the person you thought it was, even though the, it's, it's a zero-sum economy. So just imagine this is a zero-sum economy. Um, so you get to be with this person you love, or you know, your dog, or you know, make it your, your mother who loved you so much and loves you so much, and this is just ridiculous that this would happen to her, whatever. Someone, someone who really matters. And your counterpart has to do all the mourning. Um, but it's not you, so it's fine. Just the way it wasn't John Doe, it was some other John Doe. So 
I, I was relieved instead of thinking as a saint would, well, so it's not that John Doe, but someone else is suffering and someone else died, so it's just as bad. Um, yeah. Um, but how do you know, like, I know Source Code and Grandpa, they both post the same questions. What about, like, fate or destiny? Like, in, in Source Code, I know Jake Gyllenhaal dies four different ways, and mm -hmm. they all end with him dying, even though he gets off the train, even yeah. though he gets, targets different people. So how do you know that in one world where your friend is dead, you go to the next world and he's not just going to die five minutes later? Yeah, but because because um, because uh, the Amazon preview of the of the different worlds, um, you can you can click on a link which will tell you whether the outcome is good or not. It's a good point, but we're going to stipulate that this freak accident doesn't occur. I mean, it's it is it really is also like sliding doors. That is, you know, that um, oh, thank God I avoided that, but it leads to a worse disaster. Um, so, sure, but, you know, someone, you see someone, your loved one is about to be hit by a car, you say, watch out, they dodge out of the way, you're not saying to yourself, but how do I know that the fact that they dodge out of the way isn't going to cause them to um, meet someone who will give them the Ebola virus, and then they'll spread it all over North America, and millions of people will die, and it, it'll all be because I told them to watch out. I mean, it's a real-life anxiety, too, except no one worries about it. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I was to directly respond to that um, in modal realist terms. Uh, worlds are totalities of facts. So you would, assumedly, with this machine thing, you would be able to know every fact about a certain world that you can go to so you can pick a world that's not going to have something bad happened five minutes later. Um, but also to address this whole thing, just to have it be nicely framed within the dialogue of speaking about possible worlds in the realist sense, uh, all possible worlds are spatio-temporally and causally isolated. So there's this travel between possible worlds is not yeah, just in case you were <laughs> worrying about it, uh, won't happen. Um, but the problem is then, uh, does it make any sense to talk about others' possible worlds, since apparently we can't refer to them? Um, well, we can refer, and we can know about them, though there's lots of arguments about how that works out. Yeah, and lots of arguments <laughs> against it. Yeah. But yeah, um, okay, look, here's... here's um, the reason I'm asking the question, and there, you know, we can repeat this class on Thursday um, differently. Um, but the reason I'm asking this question is that if you do feel, and I really like the idea of the dog, but if you really do feel like you would go to another world where this person will live, um, if you could do it, which you can't, but if you could, if you lived in a world where you could, um, and you would go to this other world where this person would not be dead. Um, on some level, that would be because you are thinking of that person as being the same, even though you're switching with your counterpart who is not the same as you. So the fact that that person whom you love has a counterpart in another possible world um, doesn't seem to matter to you that it's a counterpart and not the same person. Um, they'll think they're the same person, 
everything that you can say about them in the third person indicative. This person is this way, this person has done these things, this person cares about these things, this person loves you, this person knows you, whatever. Everything you can say about them in the indicative, that would all be true. And yet, they wouldn't be the same person from their point of view if you think that your counterpart is not the same person from your point of view as you are. And so the question is, when you love someone, does it count if you get an exact replica who believes him or herself to be the person that you love? Is that how adequate a substitute is an exact replica? Um, an exact replica with a mind who actually believes that they are who they are a replica of. Would that be good enough? Yeah. And then, I don't know, this raises the question in my head of what if, you know, it's kind of similar scenario, you, you, your friend dies, your dog dies, and you're giving the option to plug yourself into virtual reality exactly yeah. identical to this world that where they're alive. Um, but then I guess you're not guaranteeing that they... Yeah, you're not, yeah, there what you're doing is you're having your experience, but you, some part of you knows that, that that's a simulation. But here you're given um, a being that is morally a fully human being, um, is absolutely a fully human being, has had absolutely the same past as the person you love. Um, Shouldn't your experience be the same? Or maybe, or the fact yeah, so your experience is the same. And is, does the fact that your experience is the same, is that enough? And that is, you could say, um, to some extent, a measurement of um, your ascription of other minds to someone. So I think that what Bill Murray is doing, in a way, by trying to save those people, is he's ascribing other minds to them. Now, OK, where, where this is going, this is what we didn't really get a chance to talk about. But um, Kierkegaard's idea of repetition. So remember. Um, that Kierkegaard um, has this amazing definition of, re of repetition as recollection forward. Um, and it's worth trying to figure out what that means. Um, that um, recollection, the re in recollection, is a re of doing it again, of repetition. So recollection is repetition backwards. That is the past repeated in memory in the present. That's recollection. And therefore, repetition is, re is recollection forward. Um, that Repetition is present and future-oriented, whereas recollection is present and past-oriented. Um, recollection is about the relation of the past to the present. Repetition is about the relation of the future to the present. So the idea of repetition um, that Kierkegaard, he isn't quite the person to introduce it, but he is, boy, does he ever introduce it or reintroduce re it. Um, the idea of repetition is going to get picked up by Nietzsche in um, the, an idea that Nietzsche thought was the scariest thing he ever thought, which is what he called the eternal return, um, sometimes um, called the eternal return of the same, although I don't think Nietzsche ever actually used that phrase. But um, the idea of the eternal return is look at the universe. It's got a finite number of particles in it. Um, so there are only a finite number of dispositions of those particles. Um, the universe is finite, and it's got a finite, um, um, it's, it, the matter in the universe is finite. It's like a deck of cards, only very, very big, but like a deck of cards. 
So if you shuffle a deck of cards long enough, um, you will get any sequence of cards will repeat. Eventually, any sequence of cards will repeat out of sheer randomness. So let's just say that um, you have a rule that if you have a certain sequence of cards, you will move the cards in a certain way, so you'll get a, you'll get a successor sequence of cards, which following the same rule will give you successor sequence of cards. No matter how complex the rule is, eventually you'll cycle. The sequence of cards will cycle. As with a deck of cards, so with every atom in the universe, eventually it will cycle. So everything that's happening is going to happen again. You will sit through this class again. You will not laugh at my lame jokes again. I don't know that I can stand it. Um, but all these things will happen again. So for Nietzsche, this is a terrifying idea. That it's not that you live your life once. It's that every crappy thing that ever happens is going to happen again and to you, and it's going to happen an infinite number of times because the cycle will just go on forever. So that idea... Um, which Zimmel actually showed wasn't true, but he also showed was a close enough approximation to truth, gets arbitrarily close to truth, that it doesn't matter that it's not true. Um, it's not true because of irrational numbers. But um, that idea that everything will repeat again, um, for Nietzsche, that puts a burden on you. And that burden is something like Kierkegaard's burden of repetition, which is that if you're going to have to do this all again and again and again, as David Byrne says, when this kiss is over, it'll start all over again. If this will happen again and again and again, you had better live your life if you want to have a decent experience throughout all of eternity, affirming everything that's happening, turning it into a cause for joy and affirmation. Because... It's always going to be happening. And so the idea that repetition is something that happens to you, but something that you can also respond to, that's something that's already present in Kierkegaard, but also something that, um, for Nietzsche, becomes the essential task of the human will, to turn, as he puts it in The Use and Abuse of History, to turn it was into thus I willed it. He calls it amor fati, love of fate. And the, for Nietzsche, what fate is, is repetition. Everything is fated to happen again, so fate equals repetition. And then this gets picked up in a major, major way by Freud. And that's something we will talk about um, later on, partly in the context of Vertigo. Okay.